reading from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through to 17, and you'll find it in your service sheet and also on the screen, I think. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship, the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. Instead, it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Jonah's Prayer Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, everyone. Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us today, my name's Les, and um, we're going to look at this part of the Bible together. Through uh, the first term, we kind of were doing random uh, passages out of the Bible. John had some stories from, um, from the Gospels. I had some passages in Romans to share, and we kind of thought for this term we'd get a bit more coordinated and look at uh, one book of the Bible together, and I thought given John was uh, so gifted in his storytelling and Jonah is a nice little story that we'd do that. And then as John started to prepare for uh, beginning this series last week, he was saying, this is really hard, Les. He kept on telling me every time I'd see him, it's a really hard book of the Bible to preach. And I was like, no, you'll be right, you'll be right. And then I've got chapter one and I've realised it's a really hard book of the Bible. And it's crazy because in my Bible, it's like literally just that page. But it is packed full of of um, a lot of a lot of different ideas and a lot of things uh, to try to understand. So let's pray that God would help us to to um, unpack this unpack this well and and to understand it well. And just to give you that big context, John introduced this to us last week as one big story. This week and for the following four weeks, we're going to uh, look at one chapter at a time to really take all that in. So let's pray. Our loving Father, we give you great thanks for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us. And even when it is 
difficult to hear or difficult to understand, Lord, you've promised that it, it produces something good in us. Lord, when, when um, by faith we, we receive it and we seek to live it out. So, Lord, we ask for your spirit to be with us, to both comfort us and rebuke us. And, Lord, to know, let us know of your, of your mercy and your grace, Lord, that we might, uh, with all our faults, still be able to receive your word and to live it out for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, think about that time when you get told something that you really don't want to hear. It might be like your kid comes up to you and is like, oh, Daddy, I feel like I'm going to be... And then they're sick all over your lap. Has anyone had that happen? No, I was driving to Broadwater a few weeks ago and Sonny had that bug, but we didn't know that he had it yet. And I'm like, gee, he's gone quiet. I hope he hasn't fallen asleep. And I look around and he's just like, oh. When you hear something... You don't want to hear. might be at the doctors. You've gone and got one of those skin checks. Bad idea. They're going to, going to cut you open, aren't they? They're going to cut you up because they're like, oh, no, I'm not, not too sure about that one. I'm going to have to cut that off. Sometimes we hear things that we don't want to hear. Sometimes it's more serious. Someone uh, important to us or close to us in our life comes to us and confides in us. This is what happened to me. Or someone really close to us comes and says, it's over. We can't be friends anymore. But I want you to actually think about those instances and take it even that step further. When it's not just sad news or inconvenient news, but when it's actually news that you have to act on. You can't hear it and ignore it or leave it. It needs to be acted on. An example in my own life I could think of when um, Tara and I were engaged. Uh, we were both, I was 20, she was 21. Uh, we were pretty young. And a few times my dad had to say to me, you need to be more considerate. If you're going to get married, you need to learn to be a bit more considerate. Now, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but three or four times I remember over about three months, I really needed to be told that. And it was hard news to hear because... I had to change. I, it, it, was, it was change or it was going to not go well for me. And those kind of things is what God's word can be like to us sometimes. Sometimes when we hear the Bible, what, what we hear is a rebuke or a correction. It's something that we can't, we can't actually just let it sit there and not, not be acted upon. It has to result in some kind of change or some kind of action. It's a correction, a rebuke, and it's painful to hear. Now, we've got to remember that to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, it's a free gift of salvation. It's a free gift that he gives to us. And it's beautiful news when we first hear it. When we take it on, it is life-giving. It gives us joy. It gives us peace. Then, what flows on from that is, is the realisation and the deeper realisation of the depth of our sinfulness, of the depth of what we've been saved from. And as we actually interact with God's word, word while we hold on to that grace, that free gift, 
by that same grace, God actually starts the work of transforming us. Secure as his child, but being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus put it quite clearly. He, he actually says this in calling people to himself. If anyone would come and follow me, they must deny themselves and daily take up their cross and follow me. The Christian life is one of giving up on our own ambitions and it's committing to a new family of people. A, a pretty mixed bunch of people, really. People from all kinds of walks of life. And we're called, aren't we, to love those people, to put up with those people. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So what's this got to do with Jonah? Well, John introduced it, and it's one big story. It's kind of in two sections, and it's a story that's full of irony. It's a story that's, that's actually quite humorous if you read it in, in that particular way, and it's a story that ultimately is unresolved. By the time we get to the fourth chapter, we, we still finish with a question, and that's kind of the way that it's written. And for that reason, Jonah works as a mirror. It has actually a book in the Bible that when we read it and when we look at it, it actually shows us things about ourselves. And if we're reading it properly, I think that's what it should do. And so because it's a mirror, the aim for looking at this particular passage today is to ask ourselves the question that we see played out in what Jonah does. Are we running from God? Are we in any way in our life as a child of God running from our Father, from his gracious plans for our lives and for the world that we live in? So before we really kind of turn that mirror on ourselves, let's just look at what it says, beginning with the first verse of that section. It begins with Jonah receiving the word of God. And Jonah, we don't know much about him, but he is a prophet. And one thing that's important about him is his name actually means a dove. Jonah means dove, and that's a symbol of peace. And it kind of gives us some sense of what calling Jonah has as a prophet, to be one that would bring peace to the people around him. And the interesting thing about the, the word that Jonah receives is it's actually not a word for his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. It's not for them, but for the Ninevites. So this is just recapping. If you weren't here last week, Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. And I heard someone describe Nineveh kind of like this. It's kind of like a nation that has the barbarism of ISIS, nasty, nasty people, with the military might of the US. Could you imagine what kind of a lethal combination that would be? This is who these people were. And God has said at the very start, it's wickedness has come up before me. Now, there's plenty of examples, if you read your Old Testament, of where the wickedness of a whole nation comes up before God. Go right back to Noah. God looks at all that he's created... And he can see that every inclination of everyone's heart is only evil all the time. And it tells us that he's sad. And apart from a little sampling of his creation on an ark, he floods the whole thing. You get to Egypt and the plagues that come on 
on Egypt under Pharaoh and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart leads to mass kind of destruction. You see the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of Genesis. You see the Canaanites as Joshua takes the people into the land. The point that we need to always remember is that God is a God who is righteous in his judgment. It's not a popular idea, but it's definitely clearly put by the scriptures that God is right to judge. In fact, from the very moment that Adam and Eve turn their back on God, they question God, they sin against God, for God to let them live another moment is his first act of mercy upon them. It would be perfectly right for God to judge. Now, this is a really unpopular idea in, in our culture. And this is part of the message of the Christian faith that is really being censored. If you, I, I haven't known what to make of Israel Folau and that whole controversy, and I don't know how much you've followed it in the media. But what I take from that is that to believe that God is a God who judges is... is Politically incorrect. It's, it's something that we are, are not, you know, are being questioned whether that's really what we believe and whether that's really what we're allowed to believe. So, what are we going to do with, with this idea? This is the Assyrians, and God is, God is kind of on the edge, on the verge of bringing judgment on this nation. But God chooses through Jonah, to, to actually forewarn these people, to give them a warning. And that's the message that Jonah has been given to take to these people. Now, Jonah has suffered as an Israelite at the hands of these people. And that gives us some understanding as to why he has no interest in going there. But there's also something bigger at play in the Bible. See, Israel... The nation of Israel itself are not an innocent party. They have turned their back on God time and time again. Pretty much from the time of David, Solomon's his, uh, his um, descendant, uh, sorry, his successor. He comes after him, his his son, and he starts to bring in all these other uh, religions from all these other nations as he takes on wives, and then the whole thing just goes goes kaput. It doesn't, doesn't really work. The, the nation of Israel fails in its worship of God time and time again. And so God, in his, in his big plans, has plans to use the Assyrian nation to bring judgment on Israel. And so it's kind of, there's a bit of a tension there that the, the wickedness of the Assyrians is kind of getting a bit too great but then at the same time, God's got a big plan for what he's going to do with them. This is all really clearly spelled out in the only other place where we hear about Jonah in the Old Testament. It's from 2 Kings. Let me read it to you. 2 Kings chapter 14, 23, if you're writing any notes. It says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Johash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Neobat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel 
from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amadi, the prophet from Gath Hephar. So there's our little um, glimpse of where Jonah is in the big story. But you can see that the king is wicked and he's led the whole nation astray. And it's not only that, but if I read on, you'll see the way it describes the suffering of the people at the hands of the Assyrians. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jerob, son of Jehosh. Not good with the pronunciations of all those Hebrew kings. But the point is that there's this tension going on at the time of Jonah. This tension between the Assyrians being part of God's bigger plan, but then also the, the judgment that needs to come on the Assyrians for the way that they're living, for what they're acting. So you can kind of get some insight as to what motivates Jonah to run in the opposite direction. But that's not the end of the story. So as Jonah runs, what we've got to notice is God is not troubled by Jonah's running away. The thing it's not going to do is it's not going to stop God's plans. As much as Jonah thinks he's got a read on the whole situation, it won't stop what God's doing. And the way that you see it immediately is that God's in command of his creation. And so God starts to bring about his will through sending a storm. He's in charge of what's going on there. Creation begins to remind Jonah that he can't run from God. Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. This is clearly a supernatural thing. Experienced sailors don't freak out at storms unless they're out of the ordinary, unless they're supernatural like this. And notice what's Jonah's reaction to this? Well, he's already tried to run away. God's caught up with him in a storm, so he goes to the bottom of the boat to have a snooze. It's kind of laugh out loud, isn't it? He goes to sleep in the middle of this, this storm that's threatening to break a ship apart. His decision to not care for what God's saying to him, to not care about the Assyrian people, to not care about his own people, has progressed into completely ignoring everyone, even the people on the ship that he has kind of put into danger. Now, it makes me think, our society has changed. Our society has changed quite significantly. And as it changes, as the, the moral kind of landscape of, of the, what we live in day by day changes, We've got to ask our question, do we in any way kind of do that? Do we kind of go off and, and bury our head at the bottom of the, the boat and, and have a sleep? Have we been asleep to let this kind of change happen? And one thing that I think is, is, is really challenging me personally as a Christian and challenging us as Christians is that we've come from a landscape in Australia where there's kind of widely accepted views that kind of correlate with what the Bible teaches, although it hasn't widely been understood. So in the late 90s, I was in primary school, and I remember having an argument with an Aboriginal girl. 
And at the same time, Pauline Hanson had first been elected to the parliament, and she didn't hate Muslims then, or she might have privately, but she was all about Aboriginal people and quite vocally racist. And I remember latching onto that. Admittedly, I was like 11 years old. But I latched onto that, and I I said something to this girl like, oh, I hope Pauline Hanson becomes the Prime Minister, and you'll have to leave me alone. Now, what that actually reveals to me is just how overtly racist part of our Australian history has been. And the thing about it is that the Bible actually really challenges us on that idea, but when it's kind of any us and them situation, Christianity has to call us out on that. And so as, as things have progressed and kind of we, we carry other beliefs and bigger ideas along with our, our faith, we've actually got to, we've got to develop. We've got to come along and come back to the Bible and actually see what, what's going on here. I think the real example of this is the way that our nation has changed on its views on homosexuality. Now, this is a different example because our society has come a long way from what the Bible taught, which was kind of legislated our, our society has been at. Not a, not, a, um, not a calling that just sinful, but actually a fear and a hatred of homosexual people. We've got to ask our question, as we are in this changing society, how do we run from the truth, hide from the truth, or how do we actually come back to the Bible and work through these different things to understand what the Bible says and how we can clearly and graciously and lovingly articulate that to people. It's wrong, I think, to go hard line and just revert back to that hatred, kind of default hatred that that has been present in our culture. It's also not right for us to go soft and just kind of go along with the times. God is about grace and love and mercy and judgment. When it comes to things like that or or any bigger thing that, that hits you, I think that this picture that God gives us of Jonah going and hiding in the bottom of the boat is a good way for us to to think how are we actually responding? How are we coming back to the word of God and, and learning to articulate the truth that we believe in a way that, that shows the grace and love, which Jonah's not interested in. He's just wanted to hide. And, and we should get back to what Jonah's saying here. Verse 6 tells us that the pagan sailor comes in and he has to wake him up. He has to, I don't know how he would have to wake him up given how loud the storm would have been, but he wakes him up. God has already used the creation to try to tell Jonah that he's going the wrong way. Now he's got to use a pagan sailor to come and tell him that he's going the wrong way. Now Jonah's not willing to speak to the Ninevites who worship other gods, but here we've got the pagan sailors encouraging Jonah to pray. And I actually think that Kind of to answer the topic that I brought up a moment ago, what our society most needs from us is like that pagan sailor commander asked him to get up and pray, our society needs us to stand up 
and live for Jesus, to live boldly for Jesus, to proclaim the gospel and really to be on about that. It needs us to live out of the generosity and the grace of God. It needs us to live that out in practice so that it's actually seen by all people around us. And that will mean not shying away from the difficult areas, but learning the loving response. Now, if you backtrack through the Christian heritage, it's a huge thing to unpack. And the good that's been done in the establishment of schools and universities and hospitals and all that kind of societies that look after people is massive. There's a really good documentary that was made last year. It's called For the Love of God. If you want to uh, look that up, look it up online. Uh, and it, it unveils, unveils the ways that Christianity has been good for society. It's actually really balanced. It's, it looks at how uh, the, church is, and the church is an institution that has been uh, negative towards society. It's not all one side of the story. But I'd commend that to you. But when you think about the good that can be done for our society in the name of Jesus, it's really significant. And the Christian heritage is huge. But the thing is, we can't rest on what's been done. It's no good for us in our, in our relationships, in our communities, to just be saying, oh, well, did you know that Christians did this? Did you know that Christians... You wouldn't have this if it wasn't for Christians. That doesn't help anybody. We find ourselves in a post-Christian society, a society where our morals are unwelcome. And we've got to ask ourselves, is there, do we have any ownership of this? Is there any extent it's because we've just blended in? Do you just blend in? In what you value, in what you're willing to talk about? Do you know where I think we just blend in? I think this is the hardest thing to be a Christian today, is the way that society just is materialistic, just lives for pleasure and for wealth accumulation and all that kind of stuff. Do we actually look any different to, the, to our friends, to our neighbours, to the world around us in how we, how we spend, how we use our money, how we use our time? I mean, we do. But is it that kind of distinctness that really is salty and is really light in a dark world? Well, the rest of the story in chapter 1 is about what the sailors are going to do with Jonah. And they draw, they cast lots, which is kind of like drawing stores, straws, and they're kind of trusting in their gods to do that. But what comes up is that Jonah is the cause of the problem. And Jonah is put on the spot. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Notice he doesn't call himself a prophet. He actually says, I'm a Hebrew. And he's actually, a, he, he's revealing something there that Jonah is only thinking about himself as from an earthly point of view, as belonging to this nation. And he's not really caring what God's doing, what God's doing through the world and through these people. And it's almost like he's ignoring or he's forgotten his role as a prophet. But in this, he reveals that he knows that God is in control. He knows that God has brought this calamity upon them. 
And he reveals to them that they've actually encountered in all this the living God. And you can see how terrified they are, terrified the sailors are. Jonah reveals that he's run away. He's shown them that he's the problem. He has shown them the problem with running from God. And in that, he's revealed to them that the living God cares about how they live and act. This is going to have a pretty remarkable effect on these sailors. Listen to verse 11 and 12. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm again. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. By this point in the story, all of Jonah's pride has been stripped away and he finally accepts responsibility for what's gone on. And even in saying, throw me into the sea, it's like he's saying, I'm willing to die for you in this. I'm willing to give this up for you. But I think that Jonah is actually kind of hopeful that he'll just die and avoid all the mess that he's caused. And this is where we end up if we don't be honest ourselves with our own sin. Just wanting to escape it all. Sin causes nothing in our lives but mess and chaos. Whether it's doing the things that God says we shouldn't do or whether it's just our rejection of God, I don't believe in you, God, I don't want to listen to you, God, it will cause nothing in your life except mess and chaos. And our only way out of that is by God graciously reaching for us. We must lose our pride to receive that. For us to ever really be in relationship with God, we need to say, yes, I need you, Jesus, what you've done for me. Now, the thought of drowning Jonah is too much for the sailors. They've already seen the wrath of God in the storm, and so they actually don't listen to him. They try to get out and row really hard to get the boat back to shore. But even what they're doing, they're doing what Jonah didn't. They're actually trusting that the God of, of Jonah is someone that should be listened to, even though they can't see the reason. See, Jonah on one level didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites because he just didn't trust God. He didn't trust what God was doing. He didn't want any part of it. He couldn't see the reason. Why God shows any of us mercy in the first place, well, that's a mystery. Except that the more that we know God, we know that it is at the heart of his nature to do that very thing. We need to know the love of God so that we will obey him. Through the intensifying storm, God shows them what they must do to obey, to pray. Sorry, they obey and they throw him in. Then they pray and then they finally worship him. And the irony is, that they believe now in Jonah's God and they're saved from the storm while Jonah is flung into the ocean and God saves him with a big fish and I'll let John talk about that next week when we come back to Jonah chapter 2. We've got to think, in living for Jesus, how far are we actually willing to go 
in living for him? How far are we willing to go to speak the truth? How much value are you willing to place on Jesus' mission? His mission to your family, to your friends, to your neighbours, to the town, to the whole world. How much are you willing to place value on that mission and actually let it change and keep changing how you live? And even if it's like, even if your answer would be something like, well, I've let it change me for 30 years, I just kind of need to chill out with it for a little while. No. Is it still changing what you live for? Because if it's not, it's running away from God. It's running away from the calling that he's put on his life. Jonah, if you think about it, had a high chance of death. God was asking him to walk into a terrorist state and demand that they stop. Who would even listen to him? He's probably thinking this kind of thing. They'll murder me on the spot. But what we've got to remember, and we we are in a good place to know this, it's the God who is in control of his world that sends him. It's the God that is in control that calls us to live for him. Chapter 1 shows clearly that as much as Jonah runs away, he's never in control and he can't take control from God and his disobedience won't stop God's mercy going forth. Do we fail to speak up and share God's message of mercy and judgment because we fear that people won't accept it? Or because we fear that people won't accept us? Think about some of these verses that I'm going to allude to. If God has sent us to be salt and light in the world, if God has called us to be prepared in and out of season to speak about the hope that we have, If God has called us to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything Jesus commanded, then if God has commanded it, shouldn't we be confident to go and do it and to keep on doing it and never tire of doing it? Doesn't that passage that I just quoted in Matthew finish by Jesus saying, and I will be with you? Living this side of the cross and knowing the message we have to speak into the world, we have every reason to always know that we're on the winning side. Well, why is it so hard? Do you find it hard? Maybe it's not hard for you. I find it really hard. Our heart is inclined to sin. And we actually desperately need that grace every day. And we can only run to God for that grace, never away. One of the things that Jesus memorably said is he said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And he says, take this yoke upon me, sorry, take my yoke upon you for my, I'm going to misquote it, for my load is easy and my burden is light. In this way, this is the way that, that Jesus, following Jesus is actually an easy yoke, not because he takes us somewhere easy, but because he's there, yokes to us, because he's the one that's taking us. And this is what Jonah has just completely forgotten and ignored, and he's run away from God. If we run from God and his plans for the world, we do nothing for ourselves except introduce a suffering and a chaos that God doesn't want for us and that he's warned us about. 
We only grow as Christians as we keep answering the call that God's word makes on our lives. No matter how hard it is to hear and no matter how hard it is to follow. See, the only place that Jonah could find refuge is running toward God. The only place that we will find refuge is to run back to the arms of God. By his grace, that's what, exactly what he invites us to do. Every time you come to God's word and it tells you something you don't want to hear, remember that you're only hearing it because God's grace has brought it to you. To hear that word, and it's only by his grace that he will allow you to obey it. The question, when we look into this mirror, this chapter of Jonah, is are we like Jonah and running away from God? Or are we running toward God as we deepen our trust in Jesus? Let's pray to that end. Loving Father, we give you great thanks for this passage. Lord, thank you for the richness of all your word, but particularly this part and the way that it that it prods at us and pokes at us and, and makes us question things. Father, we pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would bring us comfort and conviction of our sinfulness. Lord, that you would give us the boldness we need to live out the calls that you put on our lives. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your of your plan throughout all salvation history. And Lord, the part that we find ourselves in, Lord, waiting for you to return as king. Lord, build us in us the confidence that we know that you're coming back and that in following you, we're on the winning side. And Lord, that you've given us an opportunity to be salt and light into the world and to take the hope of Jesus out. Lord, protect us from ever running from that. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy that lets us run toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.